Welcome to Unburied Books, a podcast reading its way through the New York Review Books classics. Our book this week is Aikenfield, written by Ronald Blythe and originally published in 1969. Woven from the words of the inhabitants of a small Suffolk village in the 1960s, Aikenfield is a masterpiece of 20th century English literature, a scrupulously observed and deeply affecting portrait of a place and people and a now-vanished way of life. Ronald Blythe's wonderful book raises enduring questions about the relations between memory and modernity, nature and human nature, silence and speech. And we are joined by Nicholas During, publicity manager at the New York Review of Books. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We just wanted to ask you at the beginning, how did you come into the publishing world and NYRB? I grew up a reader. And I was an English major as an undergrad, and I got a job at a bookstore, Book Court, now defunct, and at some point decided I needed to get healthcare, health insurance, and all that <laughs> stuff. So went on the publishing job hunt. Oh, okay. And had always been a fan of the NYRB Classic series. So uh, was NYRB the first? No. Okay, job. okay. Second yeah. job. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Were you already in New York at the time? I was in New York, yeah. You've read more NYRB Classics than probably most people alive, given your, <laughs> yes. your work. I think I, I think I've probably read more than Edwin. Really? Probably. That's a nice little... I don't have a challenge. I don't think he reads them all. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> like, reads the whole book. So, given that, mm. you had free reign to pick whatever book you wanted... Yeah. You picked Aikenfield. Why? Mostly because Ronald Blythe died mm. sure. last year or earlier this year. January. 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 And I remember loving the book when we did this publication of it. And I guess just because he died, I was interested in it again. Mm. And I feel like he didn't get that much attention when he died in the US. He got more in England. So I kind of thought that maybe it was a bit of a shame that there wasn't more interest in him when he died and so I was kind of curious to read this book and I I have spent some time in England over the past couple years so I'm somewhat interested in English village life plus I just remember loving the book yeah well we're we'll be here to shout out Ronald Blythe in the biggest way possible that we can yeah it's a good time to do it so as you said he he passed away in January at the age of 100 uh he was born in Suffolk where this book is set he was an editor and author of many books spanning fiction, memoir, and history, but Aikenfield is his most well-known. It was adapted into a film by Peter Hall in 1974, and his popular word from Wormingford column in Church Times recorded his thoughts on books, religion, and nature. I haven't read that column. Or have you read any of his other works? No, but I, I would like to read. I wonder whether somebody publishes that column. People love it, I think. Yes, I, I, he wrote a book about uh, his reflections on old age, mm. which sounds really interesting yeah. too. But I just thought it would be because those are his thoughts and these are, this book is about other people's thoughts. It might be interesting to see them like next to each other yeah. because he very much sort of hides himself between the sentences of Aikenfield. So it might be interesting to like bring him out a little bit more. Yeah, I would be keen to read more Blythe. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it will get published in the U.S., though. Yeah, but there is a lot out there. That's so. true. The cover chosen by the wonderful NYRB is a painting by John Piper titled Harum Sulfic, 1975. It depicts, abstractly, a field with an old English building, a church or a castle perhaps behind it. Piper was, like Blythe, interested in British landscape and the destruction caused by war. He was an official artist during World War II. Piper also collaborated on the Shell Guides, a series of guidebooks on the counties of Britain that have a similar eeriness to them, as well as a deep admiration for the countryside. What did you think of the cover, Nick? And were you at all involved in the, the selection process of this um, one? No, I wasn't. But I think it's amazing. It's not what one would expect if someone was picking a cover of an English mm-hmm. rural scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Looking at it further, you can see the the church tower or the castle tower and a bit of the kind of, you know, quite not just green, but but kind of multicolor landscape. I think it's a wonderful color. And as you may have picked up in the book, Blythe, I think, wanted to be a painter. Yeah. And and was very interested in the arts. And I know he had... And the book is dedicated to a painter? Yeah. I know he had strong relationships with English artists who I won't know and I think is probably the executor... John Nash, he dedicates this one mm-hmm. to. And I think he... Uh, Cedric, I've looked up his Wikipedia page. 
I think he runs the estate of Cedric Morris, who is another quite famous kind of okay. English painter. So he, I think he's in, he's very in that kind of English painting scene that I don't know much about. But gotcha. Right, right. And it's, the subtitle is Portrait. So it's like his, yeah. his painting yeah. of them. And I do kind of like, it's interesting that it's a very modernist sort of painting um, of something that's very historic and rural, which is basically what Aikenfield is. It's looking at a modern view of a town that's mm-hmm. kind of stuck in the past. In some ways and in other ways, it's really changing faster than they're ready for. True. When you pick the covers, do you consider like the the person that made the art as well? Because Piper seemed to have a very similar life as Blythe and the people here, and we've found that to be a common occurrence. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't pick them personally, but Edwin and Sarah, I yes, I mean Edwin is a failed art history major, so oh, right. he knows. He did mention that. Yeah, so he knows a lot about art mm. and they used to just go to the strand bookstore and go through the art section looking for stuff plus they have a whole lot of art books so they know a lot about art and yeah they're picking they're picking based on the theme of the book but also no doubt somewhat kind of associating with the author awesome and Blythe is a yeah he has this interest in painting and it and the subtitle as you say portrait mm-hmm. um really kind of brings it out for sure so Aikenfield is a made-up place name for Charfield in Suffolk, and the individual portraits, which encompass farmers, teachers, foragers, gardeners, and even a grave digger, are presented as monologues that are maybe purportedly authentic, but in reality we know they're somewhat fictionalized. The people are, I guess, composite sketches, and I heard uh, that he took the names from tombstones, which is very <laughs> apt. So how real is Aikenfield? What are your thoughts on how he massaged the material to fit his purposes? That's a good question. People want to put it in the category, I probably try to put it in the category of publicizing it of oral history, and there's right. a Studs Terkel quote on the back cover, and I haven't read Studs Terkel working, but I imagine it has a similar feel to that, but I suspect it's not mm. totally factual, partially because... Even though it's not all in dialogue, it does. Feel, it, it is presented as if this individual, as this right. character, is, is is talking in speech. But it's they're all a little bit too well spoken. Yes, I think. and vulnerable yeah. as well. Yeah, and I guess I wondered whether I, I probably am not totally close enough reader, so I'll put it back on you. Did you think that there were distinctive voices in each of these people, in each of the characters, or do you think that they were? all a bit kind of well done, writerly, you know, mm. clearly mediated between by a good author like Ronald Life. I think it was a little bit of both. Yeah. Like I definitely saw his his worldview coming through yeah. all of them, but there was distinctions. I mean, I did feel even within one trade where it'd be this blacksmith that's a little bit older and this one that's a little bit younger, I could feel the, the change I mean, it's well done, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's authentic. I saw definitely differences in like punctuation from some. There will be some with mm. like lots of exclamation points, or some that are more quizzical back, and some that are a little bit more colloquial than mm. uh, more proper speaking. But I do think that you bring up a good point about how authentic the voice is, and it's just one of those beautiful ideas about. Where does artist and subject right. separate? And this might be a perfect meeting in the middle where it is totally a Blythe's language, but it is true true to the, the people that lived in Charfield slash Aikenfield. And we should also say that some of the chapters, not all of them, some of the characters, not all of them have little introductory yes. paragraphs or passages yes. that are... Even though they're not really attributed to anybody, one has to assume they are introductions by Blythe mm-hmm. into these people, and it's they're part of they're part of the book as much as the as the words and the, and the appeal of it. I think. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of those specifically? They allow him to have a bit more. There's a bit more flavor in them. There's a bit mm-hmm. more opinion in them mm-hmm. in a way, which is kind of surprising because one would imagine that actually letting people speak their minds like <laughs> like when things would get more but actually he's he kind of has subjective ideas about the town and the people in it 
that he says that often people are a bit more cagey and a bit more kind of tolerant. I mean, one of the things about this book is that actually people are quite people are quite tolerant and mm-hmm. and nice about it and open to each other. Not everyone is always happy, no. but they they seem to accept differences in their community. It was less conservative than I expected for a very traditionalist town. The next question we've talked about a little bit already, because it's a question that's raised by Matt Wieland in the intro, but it's how do we categorize Aikenfield? So we've talked mm. a little bit about yeah. this, but we can skip over a little bit about how we, uh, what we categorize it as, but how much do you think it matters what we call it? Do you, does it need a categorization? Mm. And do you have a different opinion as a publicist versus a reader? That's a really yeah. good point. Yeah. I mean... We're next to a bookstore right now, and bookstores stock books like libraries do as well for reasons, for for good reasons, so that they're easy to find books of certain sorts. So there does need to be a category Mm. for books. And I I think it was a while ago, but I I remember trying to pushing the oral history kind of-ness of this just because it seemed fun and cool and... Mm. There's not too many of them, really. And if, if one could say, if publicists could say, this is a oral history of the highest caliber and compare it to Sustokal, mm-hmm. I would imagine that would pique people's interests. Okay. You know, while saying this is a fictionalized, well-done fiction of a town with lots of characters in it, it starts to sound a little bit, you know, in the mix of, of lots of other books. So I think I I would, and and personally, I would still be tempted to take it at face value and call it nonfiction. All right. And stock it. If I was at a bookstore, I would stock it in nonfiction, I think. In the intro, Matt Whelan kind of calls this that the life wanted to be so, sort of a travel writer, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of ironic because it's the town that he <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, raised and lived to 100 in. But it is... I think I would take take it yeah, for what it is and that those characters, we have to kind of assume these characters are actually speaking and he is recording them. Even if I kind of imagine it, that he's doing, he's kind of just doing an edit of, mm. their, of their words. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I mean, we wrote down here, is it, is his, are his interventions, do they tell more truth or less? Mm. And I feel like it, it raises interesting questions, but it's like, how do you reduce that to a little snappy line yeah. to be written up in a review yeah. in a magazine? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like his his introductory paragraphs, in a way, they don't... They, they're just kind of introductions. They don't say too much about the people. I mean, they give brief introductions of the people, but they only, they're kind of only contextualizing, you know, the beginning. Like, even... I guess I'm thinking of the places that I read most recently, but the in the law section um, mm. about the there's one maybe the only one where it doesn't it has the guy who is arrested for sleeping with his 14 year old niece yes or the friend of his daughter or the friend of his the daughter of his friend and it doesn't even have his own words right it's just Blythe he's he's got the character like everybody else but it's just the description of this person and really the story mm-hmm. of, of, of him and his crime and the town's, you know, reaction to it. I'm not sure where I was going with that, but it struck me as, as that was the one that kind of, he came, that came out more for the character kind of portrayal. Yeah, he does switch it up a little bit and it kind of perks up your ears. You think, why did he do that there? What was it about that that made, like, that required a different approach? When we recorded couple weeks ago with Anthony Beaver, he mentioned during our Stalingrad episode that one cannot generalize history, that there's not one explanation for human behaviors at any point. How do Blythe's portraits offer an antidote to the conventional view of villages and villager life in England? The main, I feel like the main thrust of the book is a surprising, as you were saying, a surprising amount of progress, kind of what we call now progressiveness, that rather than the farmers, there's some of the, some of the farmers uh, re- remembering and praising the old ways and sad about changing of the garden and, and new technologies and such, but actually they're all mostly quite keen on, on progress. And it's a bit surprising because I would have thought, oh, you know, this, this is a book, a portrait of a cute 
English Suffolk town, mm-hmm. they're going to want it to say the same. We all want it to say the same. We have an image of it. We have a fantasy of it. Ronald Blythe, no doubt, ha- has that. But actually, people wanted to change. And they often say, I wouldn't go back to what it was like in my childhood or my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that was the most surprising to me, that actually the village is not as conservative as one might expect. Sure. Um, it is a bit tinged, I guess, because this book came out in 1969. So one wonders whether it was just a time period yeah. and that would be different now. But um, assuming it's, you know, it was, it, that was, I wasn't quite expecting the, the politics of that. I wasn't either. But, but that was the appeal. It was like, it was very unexpected. And like the the cover captures this more modern take on an old idea mm-hmm. and it felt like the people were real and it felt like a lot of it was almost uncomfortably real at times where he just he doesn't excerpt them really short like it could have been a shorter book i think like much slimmer could but have been a he, longer book. he stays with the people it could have <laughs> I, I wish i wish it was like twice as long. i couldn't <laughs> stop reading it it was great what do you think about the length i think the length was okay for yeah it's, it's a good length. I just, every time I picked it up, I never felt like, you know, time was going by yeah. or words were weighing on yeah. me. It just felt like I just wanted to meet more and more people. Yeah. Well, the other part, uh, back to the kind of village, how he presents the village life, is the diversity of, I mean, the main the main category of people is their, is their jobs, is labor. Yes. Everybody's categorized by what, they're, they're, what they do. And that's all, you know, in the beginning, in the... Each chapter is ringing men, farmer's boy, the forge, wheelwright, craftsman, school. And I guess if you, we all vaguely would know that there are all these different jobs in a, <laughs> in a village, but one doesn't think about them too much, especially if one doesn't live in a village. And, and to kind of have this wide range, different types of people in different jobs, but also the wide range of jobs and how their jobs change them in, in that, you know, the people's, it's kind of a, it's it's funny, it's kind of, a, even though some of the stuff in this book feels quite antiquated, the idea that people are defined by their work feels mm-hmm. is, uh, feels very modern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but actually maybe it isn't, because the village life going back, you know, way back, people were obviously defined by their, their work more than anything. I found, even though maybe once you get into it, you aren't surprised by this fact, it is the most, kind of, I find the most interesting part of the book, that there's all these different jobs and people's descriptions of it and, and mostly they like their jobs mm-hmm. um, they may not always be happy with how they've done but they mostly like what they do even farmers boys you know they don't think to, they can be anything else yeah sort of. they think they're like we i was built i was uh, born into this sort of role my yeah. parents had the sort of role it is something carried on yeah that part about the the hands it was like yes. the hands are reborn into the village many times yeah. it's like this village has seen my hands yeah. over and over. It's amazing. That was beautiful. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And most most of them wanted to, have wanted to do the jobs that they yeah. have mm-hmm. gotten. Even you know they're, they're they're farmers. They don't even they may not own their own farms, and they aren't making a lot of money. But they've always wanted to work the land, and then they have gone to it. Mm-hmm. So the the book is structured mostly around these different professions, but they're in a certain order. And that order kind of creates a story arc throughout the book. What What were your thoughts on how he patterned everything, and like the whether that totality of experience like was successful to you? I it's a good question. What do you think? Well, I liked how it. The book to me deals with life and death. Like if you are a farmer or if you raise animals, like you are cultivating life, but then you're also slaughtering it or harvesting it to be consumed. And the book starts with these survivors of different wars, right? It goes from World War One to World War Two, and they, some of them are really horrible experiences. And then you move into these much more lighter things about guys being obsessed with their roses and their apples and their beautiful chandeliers. And then it, and then it ends very movingly with the grave digger. So it kind of goes from death to life and then back to death, yeah. which is this cyclical kind of farming season yeah schedule and i think you're right there there is kind of a 
elderly people in the beginning and then it kind of moves to young people yes. yeah. and then students, you know, young farmers, young students at the agricultural schools and then back down again in a way. Yeah. And then kind of it, there was this little outsider section at the end. That's what I was about to mention. Mm-hmm. So I found that to be one of the most interesting subjects, which is chapter 19, The Northern Invaders. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I, when I was looking through the <laughs> table of contents, I assumed that it would probably be best to start with The Northern Invaders, mm. as we are sort of coming into this town yes. with them, and it would yeah. be sort of an introduction about like, oh, this is how it's going. Yeah. And then we would actually meet the people in the town and see what they're doing. I... Think it was actually better that he left it towards the second of the, the, the penultimate yeah because when we get there we are in the town we are seeing them as this outsider invaders we understand their correct and misconceptions about the town itself yeah. and i found that really moving i loved the northern invaders especially the scottish sheep farmer he was great i just that was one of the most interesting points in the overall arc yeah. of the different people the context here is that Aikenfield, and I guess Suffolk in general, had had quite a low period in the Depression, really, when prices were down and people were not farming and the farm the farms were deteriorating. And it took an influx of Scots, Scotch people coming in who oh, were coming yeah. in from much poorer land, even though I guess the, the, the implication to me was that if the farms were failing in the 30s because of the Depression, because of, you know, just changing economic systems, but the, fa- the land is still good, and the Scottish farmers who are coming from much worse land, that much rockier, oh. um, l- less arable land, have come into Suffolk, um, and then they, are, they like to claim very hardworking and very organized and very mm-hmm. critical. And then they have a new kind of flux of people who are experienced and hardworking farmers who are quite pleased with the land they have. And then it seems, this book is published in 69, that the... After the after the war, that farming is profitable again, and that mm-hmm. there's lots of talk about the land being very dear, and that no one can afford. Young people can't afford to buy the buy the land. Interesting. It's funny when I first saw the Northern Invaders in the chapter in the in the table of contents. I didn't think of Scottishness. I was wondering whether it was going to be kind of gentrified, whether it was going to be, uh-huh. you know, oh. there's a little bit of talk. There's actually not that much of it. Maybe in 69, there's less that people from London, there's a little bit of it, but like, it's not quite like, oh, people were moving in here are wealthy Londoners yes. who were taking over. And that's what I thought the invaders would be. You know, cities inside the Hudson Valley, you know, the invaders would be city <laughs> city people who were retired, you know, yeah. going remote because of COVID. For and, sure. <laughs> and and but the Northern Invaders are not those. They're, they're Scots. Mm-hmm. I do think the other thing I noticed, and it's not 100% true, so don't take me at face value for this, but it does seem to go from people that are learning to sort of the teachers themselves. So we talk a lot about, it, it's more about like people that are talking about how I learned how to be a forager, how I learned how to be a craftsman. I went to the school and stuff later on it gets more into for example even the young men there's a shepherd his story is more about how he trains his dogs it's not necessarily how he's training it's how he trains his dogs mm-hmm. or the law it's something about how they're trying to be a more a better correctional facility for other people mm-hmm. so I, I i felt it sort of rise a little bit it's not exactly a hundred percent there but mm-hmm. that was the biggest arc i was getting throughout the book is i felt like more and more people we're talking more about their experiences with others rather than their experience about how to learn how to do the job itself. I didn't notice that, but I'm glad you did. I, I could be totally wrong. <laughs> like I said, it's not super consistent. That was just my overall feeling. Mm. I, I do say I must. I really liked the guy that was a, a shepherd and the, talking about the way he trained his dog. Everyone felt special. Like when it ended, I would I would I would like sit on it for a second and take a breath and yeah. be like, that was a really yeah. wonderful person to meet. Mm. I'm very grateful for this book. Well, I think it is that people, people often enjoy hearing about other people's work. Yeah. And especially, you know, like maybe, especially if it's rather different from what one does, it's quite interesting to hear, you know, and this, this is only, a, you know, generally a couple of pages of somebody mm-hmm. describing their whole life work to, to uh-huh. people like us who probably don't work in the farms. Right. So no. it's pretty, I find, I find it fascinating as well. Yeah. 
we talked a little bit about this already. There are sections, the sections are mostly first-time accounts, but they're not all that. We have some excerpts that are, for example, a school logbook, the diary of the fruit harvest, a folktale, and many more, including a population manual, which I found interesting mm-hmm. about like how many people worked in how many jobs and stuff. What did these departures from the form add to the book for you? Mm. They, to me, they gave it a sense of definitely the kind of, in a way, the census mm-hmm. book gives yeah. it a gives it a gives the book a sense of documentation and you know kind of tr- truth to it. The the folk tale, um, <laughs> which that was one of the strangest parts. The folk tale just comes kind of in the middle, out of nowhere, but it was a wonderful tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's just kind of about, I guess, just the kind of if one is going to return to the kind of oralness of this, it's the joy one has of telling stories. Most of these stories are that kind of they're not like entertainment value that was maybe the, the one of the cases where there is a real story told for entertainment purposes as opposed to people just con- confessing their daily lives i mean there's some the other charm of the book is things that one doesn't know anything about i mean there's lots of vocab in here yes. oh for sure that one has to look i looked up. up a lot of different like names for yeah. tools and stuff <laughs> and what was what was the probably the most one fascinated me the most was the Corn husk doll. I love yes. that. One. <laughs> yeah. I really want a corn husk doll. There's for the listeners somehow. I guess there's a tradition where, well, you might have to look it up. But I think out of corn husks, people fashion they 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 fold and tie oh. corn husk dolls, which they then put in quite prominent places. It's clearly got some kind of pagan mm. background yeah. to it. And people had done this up until then, but then there's still talk about, you know, it's it's kind of another example of things that are still happening, memories of things that are gone, and also traditions that kind of uh, are maintaining kind of value and importance yeah. to the community. And I did see, w- one of the things I like to see through them was they were a good documentation of what most of the characters talked about, like, when they grew up, what they lived through. In the school book, you could notice when the war started and they had to ration school meals for the children. And then you would notice five years later, a bunch of the children are sick and they're not able to come to school anymore. Mm. Yeah. And you could also, the orchard one, you know, you could see when the harvests were good. You could see when the town got a little less isolated because they started interbreeding yeah. in, uh, was it a Japanese a- uh, apple? With one of their yeah, own, right, right. Yeah. So you were. I, I think you could see the town grow and understand why these people were recollecting on at this point and at this point in my life. Yeah, you could see the town through all of history. Yeah, there's kind of secondary, but quite important ways that change is happening in the town. Yeah, one of the ones that struck that seems to be all throughout the book is education. Like yes. in the beginning, there is the school history manual, which is. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's rather bizarre. It is bizarre because it changes its purpose. Yeah, Yeah, it's very different from when it started. Tracking different things, yeah. There's all these, it's all these teachers, it's like a log book where the teachers are putting down every log and there must be a tiny little school at first whenever it's founded and it's no doubt funded by the gentry of the neighborhood at first and then somewhere by the church and at some point it gets into government, government funding. But, you know, they, you do feel like the headmistress must be the worst of uh, <laughs> you know, traditional village education. You know, the comments sure. that they write are quite, are quite meager and nasty. Antiquated might be yes. the best word. Yeah. <laughs> you said you were a little disappointed by the school section. The agricultural you... school? No, just the school in general. The school in general, yeah. I, I think, if I remember correctly, that comes right off... No, gosh, you're challenging me. Oh, no, I didn't mean to challenge you. It it was good. It just, it it didn't stick out to me as much. It has comments like, 1876, attendance very thin. Elizabeth Wills appointed monitor. Total grant, 29 pounds, 9 shillings. (laughs) And that's the comments for the year. Yeah. (laughs) The children won't come to school. (laughs) Only one above list, 12 names attended this week. Such irregularity is very disheartening. (laughs) The list is my favorite part of the school shit. I think it's because... My my mom is a or was a school teacher yeah. for many years, and 
I didn't feel as personally connected to it as I hoped to about mm-hmm. maybe like the experiences of the school teacher that my mom is. And so yeah. maybe that's more of a personal thing, but it didn't stand out to me as much as, and I was going to say a little bit before that is the foragers, which was one of those sections that struck me the most. Mm. And I didn't really expect to be struck by a occupation that doesn't seem to be even yeah. around since I've been yeah. born. Yeah, so, I agree. The, the, the forge is pretty amazing place and I guess maybe some will come through as they seem to be all quite successful they're all quite professionally uh-huh. successful mm-hmm. and also the skill the skill in it I mean there's skill in farming too but something about the the kind of welding forge you know what one has to what it takes to create the stuff is quite impressive mm-hmm. what do you think about the agricultural school I loved it as a sort of a companion piece to the school itself as sort of this town is more of a trades town than an educational town and so that was more valuable ultimately yes and much more modern the Mm -hmm. the the primary school you know it does feel like they're just teaching songs by rote yeah that's that's what they're doing and there's a there's a nice little passage where someone says the mother only the mother of the student only cares about the education if they can come home and recite yeah. something to them and like oh perf- they, like a performance oh they did it mm. then yeah. I got my money's worth yeah. of the school yeah well the agricultural school is a major improvement it's it's part of the improvement in the lives particularly young men there's rather big gener- I mean there's generational kind of distinctions in, throughout this book the young young people and their desires but it's I found it quite interesting because I felt like young people weren't... There's some talk about them wanting to go to Ips- Ipswich, must be the local large town. Mm. Yeah. So they go to Ipswich on the weekends, and not that far away, they can't just drive in on a Saturday night and drive back. Actually, quite a lot of young people want to stay. There's yeah. some comments on people growing long hair and and, <laughs> and biking into the town to yeah. hang out and occasionally getting rowdy on a Saturday night, but mostly... They're quite happy, and all they want to do is ride their bikes into town, and otherwise they they work like everybody else. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. We've talked a f- about a few themes mm. that run throughout the book. Were there any that stood out to you? Things that unite it, like as one piece of writing? A red thread going through. Mm. A red thread. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's funny that they're outside of... This may not actually answer your question, but what I was thinking about is we were talking, we started talking about art and painting and the cover and it's called a portrait of an English village and there is a description in the introduction by Ronald Blythe to the physical appearance the, the makeup right. of the town and the appearance of the town and and the and the how where it is and what it looks like but once you get into the meat the meat of the book there isn't actually too much description of the land mm-hmm. it's mostly people right. which i think it's quite interesting that you know it's it's a it's not really often in novels. I take that back. I was going to say often in novels one gets as much of a description, but maybe he actually is kind of he is kind of mirroring a novel with the introduction that Ronald Blythe has written is the description. And often you can imagine a novel like Proust that describe <laughs> the town, and then it goes into the characters. Right. But then this kind of does the same. Where the once the characters start speaking, they don't actually describe their homes or their farms or their their workshops. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about how it's like the people are the land, yeah. almost, and it and it the that kind of somewhat cliched like English countryside coziness of that beautiful rolling hills and the perfectly tended to fields is kind of absent. Yeah, mm-hmm. I did notice. Almost every person, I know that like the occupation was obviously an important part of mm. the thing, but almost every single person, not to just mention like what their job was, but I make this many pounds, this many shillings. I used to make this. Yeah. I want to make they this. They would interrupt their <laughs> description almost every time with like, I, I want to make, I made this, now I make this. Yeah. And I, I, I found that an interesting yeah. like addition. I don't think most people, if, if you were just writing this as a biographer or as a shell guidebook, I don't think he would have yeah. mentioned that for most people. Yeah. What other what other themes did you guys find running through? I just the meaning of work and like we talked about that a little bit, but like work versus vocation was something that I saw like a lot of the characters yeah. wrestling with. And then also this idea of like 
who are the people of Suffolk? They kind yeah. of come back to the idea of like, are they loud? Are they loyal? Yeah. Are they accepting? People are are not just showing who they are through their speech, but they're actually like directly commenting on our village is like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the yeah. people yeah. at the pub, they're yeah. like that. I'm like this. Yeah, there is an interesting in there's an interest in in type, mm-hmm. and and that I guess is not maybe it's not too fashionable at the moment to kind of you know think in types but there is an interest in type here although often it is it's quite a it's quite a nuanced and complex one because people are quite contradictory and mm-hmm. and you know even this in a generation in a in a class in in a in a work in a profession they often have have different different opinions and different kind of values and different activities I would say that obviously class is there. This book feels to me pretty firmly on the side of working class yeah. in a way. Agreed. There's not actually, there's not too much gentry. No. Um, there aren't just kind of, there's no like, there's no chapter on landowners or, no. or, or kind of lords. Even the, there's, there's a bit of talk about, there's talk about snobbishness. Yes. And there's and there's talk about some of the farmers join young farmers clubs and those can be sites of snobbishness and the people are aware of them. But then even I mean the veterinarian has has obviously got a quite successful career and he has a big house. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't feel like he's above everybody. He's a veterinarian who drives around to farms checking out people's horses and pigs, yeah. um, even if he makes more money for him, and even he's struggling. Talks yeah. about, he talks about how much money he gets per pig. Yeah. <laughs> so I like to do horses because they're, yeah. they're noble, they're, yeah. they pay well. <laughs> that was persuasive. Yes. <laughs> so talking about jobs once more, when you picked this book, you mm. said, watch out for the Belgrade yeah. section. Yeah. That this was a standout for you. Yeah. Tell us what struck you about it and how you read it differently this time. Do you have a new favorite? I think, look, because when I saw you since then, and I said I may have changed my mind about the bell ringer section, (laughs) I think what happened the first time was I had never thought about bell bell ringing being a human activity. I mean, even (laughs) perhaps watching the Hunchback Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know. (laughs) I had never actually thought of people ringing bells just hunchbacks just just hunchbacks yeah <laughs> then to read there's this there's a chapter called the bell ringers which only has two people maybe three and one of them is more experienced and and i had never i had never thought of this but they learn how to do bell ringing musically and it's actually quite complicated mm-hmm. there's i gather several types of bells in each chancel, <laughs> gonna get my vocab wrong here, and they they're different sizes, and individual people can only take one rope at a time, and they get together. Maybe I don't know how many people, but sometimes it was at six, depending on the size of the church. Maybe three, maybe six, maybe only one, and they ring the bells in rhythms that can. They're only can make they're only making one noise one 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 tone each time, but they can have quite complicated quite mathematical you know systems and structures to make songs, and they can be very even if it's only six tones it's very six notes it's very complex and I had never thought about that and they ring across the land these are very high up they're the highest buildings around and they ring across and they do it on Sunday but they also do it for people's when people die. And they have, they can have their songs, but there are also messages um, yes. about people's death and and how how old they were. Yeah. Yes. And and warnings and emergencies and the people who are trained to do them because it is quite complicated and you have to have a certain you have to have training. They they walk around, bike around, drive around the area, going to different churches, um, doing ringing these different bells, different songs, different churches. And each bell has a different sound. Each church has a different sound, and they all they kind of it's it's a it's a hobby, but it's kind of a fascinating one. 
So I thought that was very beautiful. I never thought about that before. And I guess when I saw you and I said, maybe I'm, I'm not quite as enamored by it, it, I realized it was maybe because I hadn't thought about it. Then I read the book and I was like, well, this whole world exists. <laughs> and then when I reread it, that kind of, you know, novelty had, was no longer there. Sure. But I still think it's pretty beautiful and I'm just talking about it right now, you know. It is beautiful. It's I pretty think amazing. My favorite ones did the best job balancing sort of the nitty-gritty, detail-oriented things that they would need to do yeah. for their job and sort of the emotional, prolific village impact yeah. that it would have. And that mm. one seemed to have both to really high calibers, yeah. I think. And I enjoyed them talking about both the very specific nature of the, the rhythms that they'd have to do and the, the lines of people that would come out and you'd have to like do it in certain ways. And then I liked how they're talking about like how much they love to be that... Making the sound that every that reunites the village in something. Yeah. Prayer, life, yeah. death. As as mm-hmm. you said, Kasi, this whole book is just inherently a, a study of life and death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the Forge one was pretty good. Too. Yeah. That was a top for me. The dog the dog training was pretty great. I love the orchard. You don't have to be a dog person to like how this guy tra- trains his uh, <laughs> very very smart. You're not a dog person? I'm I'm a cat person really, but Same. but um, I like dogs and and I'm impressed by by sheep dogs who, incredible. who know how to who do it. I I have a sheep dog. Yeah. Okay. So so yeah, you better you better start training. Yeah. Um, which other ones did you like? I love the orchards. Yeah. There's two orchard men, especially the first one. Yeah. Alan. Alan Mitten. I did love Colonel West, the pig farmer, who He's is a. Uh, a army man of high caliber, yeah. and he he marries someone that's a a, a woman that's from oh, a farm yeah. town, and then um, he buys the cursed farm, right? Yeah, and he buys yeah. sort yes. of like a, a farm that's on its last legs. Yeah, and then everybody says you'll you'll never succeed. Yeah, and, and, and isn't even called the the cursed farm or something like that. Yeah, there's something like succeed. that. And then he he buys the the second worst piece yeah. of land in the village, and then he ends up buying the, the first. Worst. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a very humorous and very. Yeah. Loving and this is Kasi and I talked about how we read it a little bit differently, and I think this speaks to our personalities. I read it as you know this loving venture that this man goes on with his wife, and as as far as a gentry goes, this man is a gentry. Yeah, he, he is. He's, yeah, he's more interested in you know following his wife to what she's used to, yeah. and well, he's, an, on he's an imperialist, and then imperialism yes. ends in a way. Yeah, he's yeah. been That's in Egypt forever, well, or Lebanon, he, or wherever. He it was Jordan, yeah, Jordan and yeah. it he turns his like imperialism yeah. onto the land yeah. almost and it becomes yeah. his new project. He's yeah. like they took away Jordan from me and now yeah. I need something else. And that yeah. final line about he's like, There's not a single night I don't dream of Arabia. Yeah. Now we're talking about these quite amazing people, although they're abnormal people. There's something quite nice about this book that because it's their own words describing themselves Everybody is everybody is re- relatively positive. Yeah, I would say there's not too many people, you know, and a, and a kind of novelist novelists who create characters can can be quite mean about their characters right. and show them, you know, theoretically, objectively, and we all the readers know and we don't like may not like them, but here everybody presents them themselves to Blythe and to us, and people usually, I guess, would describe themselves. Quite well, except for the only person who maybe doesn't get to describe himself is the is the pedophile guy. <laughs> and the incontinent girl. And the, yeah. yeah and that the, was another weird little that was a short one. story yeah. that yeah. comes near the end. Yeah. Yeah. I, did, I did love the vet. The I vet was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I quite liked um, the Samaritan. Yes. Oh yes. I she think was... She, she was such a like a necessary balance in yeah. the book. Yeah, yeah, she's not someone that necessarily has to work with her hands. No, but it was quite a. I mean, she she probably brings in the darkest. She brings in the darkest side of the town more than anybody. Yes, Even more than the gravedigger. More than the gravedigger. Or the magistrate. Yeah, that's true. Or the magistrate because she's. They call her a Samaritan, and she's. I think she's probably volunteering for yes. uh, for an organization that is helping people people who are thinking about committing suicide and. No doubt, then and now, I think it happens a lot in rural countries where people can feel quite isolated and life can be hard. And so it's quite, and so she talks about that. And it's quite a moving scene. Yeah, and we talked about like sort of our perceptions of English villages going into this. And 
things that we met in the book that we didn't expect and sort of approaching uh, the widespread suicide of this land was something I didn't expect. It seemed like a very contemporary mindset that she had towards mental health. Yeah. That you wouldn't have thought to have encountered in a small town in 1960s. There's not... Village. There's not a lot of women... Right. Yes. I would say. I mean, there is a section called Four Women, and the Samaritan is one of them. And the magistrate is a woman. Yes. But mostly it's. One men. of the survivors is a woman who's talking well, yeah. about her. But she's yeah. talking, mostly her life has been defined by the men who have. Yeah. She is married and that they have died. Died in the war. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty male centric book. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. And I think that's because it's a vocational centric yeah. book more than anything. Yeah. It's just because the town's industries are driven by yeah. men. By the men, women's work. Yeah. I guess the school, some of the school teachers. That's true. But all. Well, to contrast it, did you ever read the book Fen Women? No. So this, um, I think the author's Mary Chamberlain, a few years after this, inspired by this book, mm. she went to the Fens, which is like in East Anglia, but okay. a little bit far away, and interviewed just women yeah. about what they did. And it was Virago's first nonfiction mm. book. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a, a kind of, sh- maybe she certainly read this, yeah. was inspired by it, and thought like, I need to fill that gap. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this book, again, this book came out in 1969. It's surprisingly modern. It's true. It is. Yeah. And I don't, I, I don't think Blythe went into the this venture with the idea of, I'm going to focus on men more than women. It was no. just more of the, t- the way the town is set up. And so I, th- I think it's good that someone decided to come along and be like, I, I need to provide the extra. Definitely. Yeah. Also, he he is a man, and these yeah. are formed out of conversations. And I could see more men being willing to talk and open up to another man yeah, rather sure. than a, a woman being willing to open up to like this yeah. guy coming to ask them questions. Yeah. yeah. Although the irony that and while I'm printing out his intro is that Suffolk men are notorious for not speaking. They're too much. yes, they're <laughs> taciturn. But <laughs> yeah. then this book doesn't, doesn't you don't see it in this book. No, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you think you relate to the most in Aikenfield? <laughs> Bit of a buzz sprout question. But yeah, I think it's an interesting one to a get what question? A buzz Oh, BuzzFeed. 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 <laughs> yeah, this could be a quiz. You could call it Buzzsprout. Buzz, <laughs> Buzzsprout's actually another podcast, podcast platform. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I... I guess I... I various of the young men who are described. There's a bit of a mix of young men. There's, there's two types. There's kind of one who is happy, is somewhat happy with their lives and careers, but also have an eye on moving. There is kind of going through this as sometimes people thinking that this may be not forever mm-hmm. and they will have to move. And then there are some who are relatively happy with where they are and aren't thinking about moving. I guess I, I guess I think I would, I don't have one of the individual young men and, and they probably are the biggest group. So what you're saying is you're thinking about moving. I don't, no, I'll <laughs> stay. Or I think I'm young. Yeah. <laughs> I really, uh, related, I think, the most to Francis Lambert. Yeah, I was about to say, he was, he was a young man. Yeah. yeah, he was one of the forge workers. Yeah. And I, he's someone that is struggling a bit with the work that he's doing. He is someone that is very passionate and is, you know, scared of sort of the modernization of his work because he might have to get catalogs now and mm-hmm. I don't want to just be making the same piece yeah. over and over and over. And he, and he ends his... Um, story quite beautifully was something that really spoke to me, which was just, I hope I can make one more masterpiece that yeah. I can really put a passionate end into. And that he talked about a chandelier that he yeah. had for a church. And he was like, I wish I could do something more like that. And I, I, I feel like that. And I, to be honest, like that's one of the reasons I started this podcast with you, yeah. is I wanted to do something that I was really passionate about when I you know had jobs that you know, they're fine, but yeah. I, I wasn't getting what I wanted out of yeah. it. And now I'm, I'm feeling more fulfilled given this, this venture with you. There's someone who mentions Iris Murdoch near the end. Oh, that yes, was me. Yes, yes. I don't know who they were, but that was me. Yeah. <laughs> Although I took that as to be. You, it was I a, think it. I but they. It was like the. It was like cared. his breath of fresh air to have a little like modern reference. Yeah. yeah. In there to like some actual cultural artifact rather than just the specter of the television. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's talk about reading, but then there's suggestions that people don't read. Yeah. But then some of them. Do. Some of them do. And then television is around. Yeah. And then people either do go to the local pub or they don't like going to the local pub. Mm-hmm. Or they go to church or they don't. That's, yeah. that's another good yeah. These are like big yeah. differentiators. Yeah. But there are no, there's no, 
it's not like a novel. There are no scenes or a movie. There are no scenes in the pub. There are no scenes in the church. Yeah. There's not even any scenes in the school. And the agricultural school, the students live in Aikenfield, but they, the school is not in Aikenfield, and they aren't traveling to the agricultural school to study. Mm. Final question. Yeah. Many characters in the book are reflecting on how the life, their life has changed since their father and grandfather's generations. 1969, when this book was published, is now the time of our fathers and grandfathers, of people reading it a lot today. How does Aikenfield read differently in the modern, modern age now than when it does then, do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I think it has a really enduring appeal. Mm-hmm. And that there's a certain, um, we still talk about who watches television or who reads books or social sickness and struggles with mental health or the stuff about factory farming and like whether we've taken a wrong turn and maybe we need to like reevaluate our practices, uh, become more ethical consumers of meat or whatever. These are all like things that you could open any newspaper yeah. and find. And the fact, it, it seems almost intentionally done, like with the exception of the Iris Murdoch, seems almost mm-hmm. intentionally scrubbed of things that would date it, but it, I think it's very lasting yeah. portrait. Yeah, I, I agree. The progress is mostly positive and the things like the agricultural schools, even the primary school is considered to have gotten much, much better than, than when it started. The technology around agriculture is much better, the feed, but then there's always this secondary, there's the kind of the other side of the coin, which is what you're talking about and losing, losing stuff. There's, for example, the, the forge is doing incredibly well because they no longer have to make plows. Those are made in factories, but the, the, the local iron wealthmonger forge workers can make ornamental pieces that cost quite a bit of money and they make some money. So that that kind of, there's the good and the bad. I guess the worry that maybe it's just a kind of part of it, the worry that this, you know, for me is maybe everyone always says this, every generation or period, that things are worse now than they were then. Right. The, these people, even though they're, they're feeling like there's, there's something has been lost, they're still enjoy their jobs their jobs are somewhat fulfilling are still fulfilling they actually get paid better than their parents and their grandparents mm-hmm. did and so maybe there's worry about the kind of connection to the land or, or, or belief in the kind of the perfection of the work that they're doing but they still kind of like their work mm-hmm. and they still seem relatively equal I guess my worry today would be there's less equality in a small village. There's, you know, wealthy people who've moved in and poor people who are from there who don't have any money. And the jobs don't pay that well comparative to the people who really just have capital. And, yeah, we're losing that. Oh, boy. But that's well, to get a little bit political. Yeah, and but maybe I'm, I'm being pessimistic. And I also think maybe the saturation of media would have taken up some of the undercurrents yeah. of... Yeah polarization that are there and yeah. made that more dramatic mm-hmm. yeah yeah i mean the there would be this book gets into politics and there's one of the this i thought the union like the union organizer was quite good yes um and there's there's talk about politics and they're both sides of everyone seems kind of lefty but you do wonder what would have happened since. There's a there's a couple mentions yeah. of like people of color, you know, the color question coming in, yeah. and one imagines what happened after '69 and the sexuality as well. Yeah, is uh, is hinted. Yeah, at some promiscuity. Yeah, things, so yeah. although mostly that everybody quite likes this the '60s the sexual revolution yeah. is is actually okay with most people. <laughs> it seems to me. Yeah, but yeah, there's no. You wonder whether nowadays. Everyone would be whether the people in this book would vote for Brexit. Yeah, yeah, you do kind of. Brexit was in the back of my mind. You brought it there. <laughs> Is there anything you really wanted to read to um, give us a flavor of the book? I'll read the little short section from the bell rings. Yeah. Okay. And this is actually a complete one, but it's only two pages. Okay, so this is the bell. This is. 
the second bell ringer. He's not quite the the primo expert. He's, yeah. But he's still he's still his name is Sammy Whitelaw, fifty eight, age fifty eight, and he's a farrier. Is his job. I started ringing when I was fifteen and walking too. Ringing and walking went together. The ringers from Crettingham would walk to I, and those from Branderston would walk to Woodbridge. And you get some ringers who would damn near walk across England. That's a fact. You would meet them walking about all over Suffolk, looking for a good tower. Bell mad we were. I wasn't all that good. <laughs> I could manage about 720 changes, and that is about as far as I could go. Stedman started all this, you know. Stedman is some kind of guy who wrote songs for um, Bells, the, mm. the previous person told us. Most of the ringers I knew were dead and gone. I watched them. I did what they did. But it's a funny thing, I couldn't ever do more than 720 changes. I remember ringing one harvest time, and the bell flew clean off the frame. Imagine that. Bell tongues and our tongues stopped together then. That's a masterpiece, old Charlie said. I can hear him saying it. The expert ringers used to call ringers like me turkey drivers. I didn't want to be a turkey driver, but you can't always choose what you want to be in this mortal life. I knew a ringer who could ring the bell up once, make it wait, and catch a second toll as it came down. True. I wanted to do that, but I couldn't. I remember one cold November, I couldn't tell you how long ago, and a woman came to me and said, My billy has passed, Sam. Ring the bell. I said, How can I do that, ma'am? The tower has all been scaffolded for the repairs. So off she went, sorrowful. Then I had an idea. I climbed up into the bell chamber, sat on the frame and banged the passing bell with my hammer. I thought, Old Billy won't mind. It was that bloody cold, and all could hear of the passing and take note. Billy was one of the old people. The old people have gone and have taken a lot of truth out of the world with them. When Billy died, his wife walked down the garden and told the bees and hung black crepe on the hive. My grandfather did this too. He said that if you didn't, the bees would die as well. Bees are dangerous to some folk and a gift to others. You'll get someone who'll get stung once and perish, and another who'll get stung all over and get cured of all manner of things. There were a rare lot of bees in the village in those days. When they swarmed, we used to all rush out into the garden with the fire irons and scuttle and bang away. That brought them down. I hope you like this village. I have lived here all my days and have been happy enough. <laughs> excellent selection yeah. and excellent reading. I do have a quick question sure. for you before we yeah. uh, wrap up. Yeah. You, you have an English accent, correct? I grew up in Australia. <sighs> yeah. But living in Australia, do yeah. you have like visions of England? Yeah, definitely. And there's even some reference to people leaving Suffolk, leaving and moving to, to Australia. Australia. Mm. I mean, in a way, this book is quite interesting for, you know, there's, there's kind of interesting parts about immigration. There's internal immigration from some of the, quite, a, quite a few of the people have come to Suffolk and they are outsiders. They tell us that they are outsiders and they never quite fit in. And some of them are from further, the Scottish people, from the Northern Invaders, as they're called. And some of them have left, and they've left to Australia. Um, but yeah, in Australia, they probably have... We probably have the same pictures of England that Americans do. Okay, gotcha. And Aikenfield is pretty much what I imagine. I mean, mm. it, in a way, it just kind of brings out the people who would stand in the shadows. It doesn't have the kind of... All of the lords and the, and the mm -hmm. kind of... And then and the there's there is a chapter on what is it called? It's not called service. There's a chapter called good service. Is the good and it's about a, it's about a gardener. I love and the gardener. gardener. That's actually quite interesting because the gardener has left his job working for the gentry and he's but he's learned a lot being a gardener for a no doubt a really large estate with people working for him. Mm -hmm. So he's become and then he's now started his own private gardening business. He's very successful. So. Everybody in this book feels like they could be the people who aren't normally depicted in the fictionalized version of of what I imagine an English town would be like. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, we have to thank Ronnie Blythe for writing this yeah. book that offers a really, I think, hopeful message about like community yeah and also thank you for coming to talk Thanks to us about me. it thank you for listening to unburied books you can find us on twitter gmail and instagram at unburied books sweet awesome.